You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please join with me in turning to the book of Philippians chapter 4. This evening we're going to set our attention on verses 15 through 20, but I want us to read beginning at verse 10, we'll read down to verse 23. Philippians chapter 4, and we read beginning with verse 10. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the fruit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I have been filled, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will fulfill all your needs according to His riches in glory, in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, we are a blessed people, thankful for who you are, that you've made yourself known to us, that you've made us your own, given us life, given us yourself. We are those who have your spirit. We are those who are new creations in Christ Jesus. We are those, as a result, who have an everlasting hope a hope that is certain, so that we live our lives now in light of forever. Lord, these verses remind us of this, point our hearts in that direction, encouraging that viewpoint. And I pray that you would take these truths and bring them home to our hearts in a way that that would be the result, that would be the fruit, that we would be a people living now in light of forever. 
And may you produce in us and through us that which is only possible with that viewpoint. And we will give you thanks for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we saw how Paul is taking a thank you at the close of this letter and turning it into a teaching opportunity. The thank you is genuine, but the concern for their spiritual understanding and maturity is also genuine. And so he is taking this as an opportunity to teach them about how he has received their gift and rejoiced in their gift in a way that reflects contentment. He is a man who has learned contentment, and he is a shepherd who desires for them to learn contentment. And so this is an opportunity for him to model what he has learned so that they would also learn the same. We said this morning that where contentment exists, it's only because salvation has come. Where there is genuine salvation, there is a new viewpoint on everything. There's genuine faith, and that faith allows us to live our lives now in light of what God has said. And what God has said informs not only the present, but instructs us to live in the present with eternity always before our eyes. This means that what is most important in our lives is what is best for our soul. What we're most concerned about is not our material well-being, but our spiritual well-being. And when you understand that, and when you live your life that way, then there are acts of service that you and I will engage in that are just as supernatural as the salvation that God has granted us. We engage in acts of service that are uniquely Christian. There's no one else on the face of the planet that could live this out except genuine believers in Jesus Christ. And we talked about a unique kind of giving and a unique kind of receiving and therefore a new unique kind of fellowship, participation together in the work of God. This evening we come to the 15th verse and what we're going to be focused on is that fellowship that he talked about. This morning, we really focus our attention on contentment, giving, and receiving. Tonight, we focus on the fact that they are sharing in something together, the Philippian church and Paul. There's a partnership here. There's a fellowship here that he talks about. And I want us to understand the fellowship that exists that is made possible by that quality of contentment. When our hearts are satisfied with God, when our hearts are satisfied in Christ, now we can participate in gospel ministry in a way that we were not able before the Lord saved us and will not be able unless we're learning this quality. So tonight we think about six characteristics of financial fellowship. Six characteristics of financial Fellowship, because in this context, that's the kind of fellowship he's talking about. He's talking about a fellowship that existed through their material gift to meet his need in prison. Let me just say one thing quickly about fellowship. Over the many years that I've now served in ministry, I've heard many people over those years talk about their desire for fellowship. I enjoy fellowship, or I wish I had more fellowship, or I miss fellowship, and None of that is inappropriate. All of that would express something genuine. But what is interesting to me is most of the time that I've heard believers talk about fellowship, they're only talking about one aspect of fellowship. 
The word itself has to do with a participation together. It has to do with what we have in common. Fellowship has to do with what we have in common, what we share in together or what we participate in together. And certainly friendship is an aspect of that. That's what most people mean by fellowship, that they love their friendships in Christ. They love their relationships in Christ. But the fellowship that Paul's going to talk about in these verses tonight, while it has something to do with friendship, it specifically has to do with giving. And I was just thinking today, you know, I've heard many people talk over the years about wanting more fellowship. I've never heard someone say that, and what they mean by that is, I want to give more. So I want you to expand your thinking about fellowship tonight, and to understand it includes everything that we participate in together, everything we have in common together because of our common faith, because of our relationship with Jesus, and that includes how we make use of material things. So six characteristics of financial fellowship. Let's look again at verse 15. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once from my needs, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the fruit which increases to your account. First characteristic of financial fellowship, it manifests genuine faith. Financial fellowship, I mean, when it really is viewed as fellowship, when giving is considered in the context of fellowship, it is manifesting genuine faith. As we said this morning, the apostle is communicating here with great care. He's doing more than simply giving thanks. He is serving as a teacher. And twice he uses words for fellowship in these verses. In verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, you have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. Now, some versions will have the word sharing there. You've done well to share with me in my affliction. But the word, the Greek word, is in that word group, koinonia. It has to do with fellowship. You have done well to fellowship with me in my affliction. That is to say, they have entered into his afflictions with him. And they do this, they share in his affliction with him by contributing to his needs materially. They have shared in his sufferings by their financial support of him while he is in prison. And he says, this isn't the first time that you've done this. He looks back in verse 15 to when he had left Philippi, as we talked about this morning. He goes into Thessalonica. There he meets with trouble also. But this church helped him even back then. Verse 15, you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. So twice, Paul says, we have this fellowship together. And in both cases, he's talking about how the Philippian church had entered into giving and receiving with the ministry of the apostle. Now, I want you to ask yourself a question. Why does Paul, in recognizing their giving, 
compare the support they had given to him with other churches. You yourselves also know, Philippians verse 15, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. He doesn't just thank them for their participation in his sufferings through giving. He contrasts it with what other churches had done. Why does he do this? Let me give you a few reasons why I believe that he does this. First of all, the contrast points to the unique relationship that he has with this church. They do have a unique relationship one with another. And it's good, it's right that we would acknowledge special relationships. The Lord does this in the course of ministry, puts people together in a way that they form a special bond, puts people together in a way that they serve together in ways uncommon. They don't do this with just everyone. God has put circumstances together in such a way that this special relationship is formed. He is acknowledging that in the case of the Philippian church. Some versions say that they had given him once and twice, which is an idiom, just means once and again. They've given to him more than once. He doesn't say how many times, but this is a church that has supported him on multiple occasions. And he wants to point out that he recognizes that. Again, I would encourage us, when someone ministers to you in a special way, you should acknowledge that. When someone has had a special part in your walk with God, when someone has fellowshiped with you in a way that has made a great contribution to your spiritual walk or has helped you in some area of ministry, it is good, it is right that you acknowledge the special nature of that relationship. Second, I think he points this out to subtly indicate that there was something lacking in the other churches. He doesn't do this in a way that presents those churches as having been guilty of some sort of final failure. The Lord is at work in those churches. They are His work. They will be developed as the Lord has designed, and whatever God starts, He finishes. They're coming along. But what the Philippians had done was different than what the other churches had done. Paul points that out. In the case of the Philippians, their giving was spontaneous. They were grateful for the gospel. They were grateful for the man who had brought them the gospel. So without any prompting, they gave to meet his needs. And when they heard that he had a need in prison, once again, they're just moved spontaneously to help him. They've done this more than once. By implication, when he, when he mentions giving and receiving, giving and receiving, you yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. When he says that that way, what he's implying is other churches also received but didn't give. They received the gospel just like you did. You participated in receiving and giving, giving and receiving, but they did not. Paul had been used by God to bring 
the gospel throughout that entire region of the world. And yet no other church had reached out to help him. Let me ask you this. Are you a receiver but not a giver? What does it say when someone receives gospel ministry but they feel no compulsion to contribute to gospel ministry? It says something about how you value gospel ministry, doesn't it? When you understand the value of gospel ministry, you are motivated to support it. So the Philippians had recognized something in what they had received that motivated them to give, while other churches, though having received the greatest treasure in all the world, in all the universe, were not prompted to participate in the same way that the Philippians had. 1 Corinthians 9.11 says this, If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Paul having to make the argument with the Corinthian church that the laborer is worthy of his wages, even though he wouldn't receive support from the Corinthians due to his concern over their spiritual condition, he would not allow money to be a stumbling block for their spiritual development. He still needs to make the case for their spiritual development that they should be supporting those who spend their life in the ministry of the Word of God. And as he makes that case, he's presenting it in a way that makes clear that spiritual things are far more valuable than material things. Which is worth more? The ministry of the Word of God or your money? Which has more real value? Which has more lasting value? If we have sown spiritual things among you, implication being that's the most valuable thing, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And the implication is because that's the lesser thing. Spiritual things more valuable than material things. So he points out this contrast between the Philippians and other churches to say we, we have this special relationship. Subtly, he's also by implication noting there's something lacking in these other churches because they haven't participated in giving and receiving. You alone, out of all those churches, you alone have helped me like you have. Which then points to a third thing, and that is he is encouraging them. By that contrast, he is pointing out there is something being manifested in the Philippian church that is wonderful and that has been produced by God. They are manifesting something by their attitude about financial things and spiritual things that speaks not only of the genuineness of their faith, but of the maturity of their faith. The fact that you see it the way that you do, Philippians, is wonderful. It says you are experiencing, you are manifesting something that only God can teach a person a true and living faith in Jesus Christ, therefore a true and accurate view of the value of gospel ministry. And Paul had already made that point in the first chapter. He, he ties these things together. Their participation, their fellowship with him in the advancement of the gospel and what that says about their true spiritual condition. 
Flip over for just a moment to Philippians chapter 1. Look what he writes in the first verse. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see how he's tied these two things together? I see how you've participated in the work of the gospel, and it speaks to my heart about what God has begun in you and therefore what he will finish in you. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. This is what we're participating in together through your material support. We are participating together in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. What it is that I'm engaged in, you're engaged in through your support of me. Verse 8, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I'm praying that you would overflow with knowledge and discernment. And what he's indicating in that chapter is they're already demonstrating knowledge and discernment by the way that they value gospel ministry. So the first thing we see about financial fellowship is wherever it exists, it manifests a genuine faith. Second, financial fellowship results in spiritual profit. Financial fellowship results in spiritual profit. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the fruit which increases to your account. And throughout this section, Paul is using financial terms. And so when he uses the word translated fruit, karpos is the word, it might be better to understand it in terms of finances, that what he means by this is, is profit, or as the New English translation has it, credit. What I seek is the profit which increases to your account. What I seek is the credit which increases to your account. He's not seeking what is theirs. He cares about them. Just like he said to the Corinthian church, we saw it this morning in 2 Corinthians 8, I don't seek what is yours. I seek you. I don't seek the gift itself, he says in verse 17. What I want is the credit, the profit, the fruit, which increases to your account. In other words, he sees their gift to him as a benefit for them. I rejoice in what you're doing for me because I know what it means for you. Now that view of giving requires faith, doesn't it? You can hear the scoffer, can't you, when you say such things. I rejoice in what you gave because of what it means for you. And the scoffer says, well, 
Sure, you say that because they're giving you something. This is what a skeptic would say. And we know there are false teachers who have used that kind of language who don't mean what they say. They really do care about the gift itself. They, in fact, that's all they care about. That's what they want. They just want your money. But Paul's motive is sincere. His motive is godly. His motive is informed by genuine faith, biblical faith. And what he knows from the Word of God is that when people give for the right reason and in the right way, it's good for them. It's good for their spiritual life. And so it's possible to be on the receiving end of giving and be grateful for what you know that it means for the spiritual life of the person who gives it. That's what Paul is saying. I rejoice in what this does for you. But here's the larger question. It's not whether Paul believes that. It's whether the Philippians believe that. And they're demonstrating that they do by their giving. But let's bring this home in this room tonight. Do you believe this? Do you believe that it is gain for you to give away your money for the cause of the gospel? When you give your money for the cause of the gospel, do you think that's loss? Do you think that's sacrifice on your part? Or do you think you're actually gaining by making your contribution to the gospel, by fellowshipping through finances, fellowshipping through giving? Do you see it gain to help and support those who preach the gospel? Do you see it as gain to support the ministry of the church? The Bible says that it is, but do you believe that it is? And if you say, how does Paul see this as a credit for them or fruit which increases to their account? What's he talking about? Well, it might be that what he has in mind is something eschatological, that he's talking about the end of the age. We stand before Christ and we're rewarded for every good work. Maybe he's looking forward to that day and he says, you know what, this kind of help one day will be rewarded by the Lord Jesus Christ. But it could also be that what he means is this is good for your spiritual life right now. This means spiritual growth for you right this moment. And I would not be surprised if he had that primarily in his mind. Not something far off into the future, not something way off into the distance, but right this moment, it benefits you spiritually when you have the vision, the spiritual vision from the Word of God to understand the value of the Word of God being ministered. The ministry of the church, the ministry of the Word. When you see the value of that, that's good for your spiritual life right now. In fact, Paul uses karpos an additional seven times in his letters and never, this would be the only time if it were so, never in all those other uses does it refer to an eschatological reward. He's always talking about something in the present. So financial fellowship points to genuine faith. Financial fellowship results in spiritual profit. It is good for us to give for the cause of Christ. Third, financial fellowship supplies for ministers. 
financial fellowship supplies for ministers. This is the means that God has chosen to take care of His servants as they minister the Word of God. Verse 18, Paul says, But I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I have been filled, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. Let's just stop there. Why does he say it like this, that I've received everything in full, I have an abundance, I've been filled? Because he knows they care about that. He knows this will be meaningful to them. This is something they will rejoice in. They want to know that their gift has been useful. They want to know that their gift has helped him. So even though their, their viewpoint as they give is Godward, it's not wrong or sinful for them also to be giving because they love Paul and want to help him. Obviously, the ultimate motivation is the glory of God, and you do this. We'll see in a moment. It's an act of worship, which would mean it has to be for God's sake. They still love him, and they gave this through Epaphroditus to help him, and he just wants to acknowledge, it did help me. I've received what you sent by him. I've received everything in full. I have an abundance. I've been filled. It helps. It served its purpose. So this is a motivation that we should know in our giving, not just love for God, but love for His servants. Not just love for God, but love for those whom we support through that giving. We give because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We give because we love the work of the gospel. We also give because we love our brothers who serve God in the advancement of the gospel. That's a godly motivation. Fourth, financial fellowship is an act of worship that pleases God. I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I've been filled, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. And then he says this, a fragrant aroma an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Paul tells them how their giving has affected him, his joy, his needs being met. But now he tells them how their giving is accepted by God. He wants them to know that their giving has pleased God. Before we think about that, let me just ask us tonight, do we really want to please God? I know the answer if you're a believer, you want to please the Lord. Well, then do you think about what pleases God? I want to please God, so what pleases God? Do you know that one of the ways you please God is through your giving? As you enter, in, enter into this financial fellowship... As you participate in the work of the gospel through material giving, do you know that's one of the ways that you please your God? And do we imagine that we can please Him if we are not generous? If we are receiving, as these other churches have done, but not giving, if our view of the value of the gospel is so small that we find no motivation to support it materially, how does that please God? The God who has brought us the gospel and brought us 
the ministry of the church and brought us the things that He has, if we are thankful for that, if we value that, if we have the eyes to see the value of it, it will be manifested through this financial fellowship. In fact, it not only pleases God, He receives it as sacrificial worship. Three things are noted about their giving by Paul in this verse. All three he describes in a way that is comparable to the sacrificial offerings given by the nation Israel according to the law of Moses. He says it's a fragrant aroma. It's an acceptable sacrifice. It is pleasing to God. That's Old Testament sacrificial language. He wants us to see our giving as an act of worship, you see. Nothing less than an act of worship. It's not some business transaction. It's not a kind of giving like you would give to the school or give to the club you belong to. No, this, this is worship when we're giving because we love Christ and we love His servants and we see the value of gospel ministry. That's an act of worship. That's what he's emphasizing. We haven't done it since COVID, but those of you who were here before COVID, you can remember we used to have giving, a giving testimony and a passing of the plate in the midst of our worship services. And that bothers some people, but I have to tell you, they're wrong to be bothered. I never understood anyone being bothered by that. Because the only way you could be bothered by that is if you see singing as worship, the reading of Scripture as worship, prayer as worship, preaching as worship, but giving needs to be private and excluded from worship. All you have to do to know that's wrong is read that verse. But in addition, all you have to do to know that's wrong is look at the first divinely executed church discipline in the history of the church when Ananias and Sapphira are killed publicly over their lying concerning their giving. How was that giving being conducted? They were bringing it publicly and laying it down at the apostles' feet. That's how it happened. So if the apostles were not averse to public giving, if the apostles considered that an act of worship, why should we think it's something else? The truth of the matter is, if we could all just be honest with our own hearts, sometimes it bothers us because money has become an idol in our lives and we think about it as something that's sort of off limits. If you don't like to think about your finances and your giving in the realm of worship, you are going to have to close your Bible because that's how God deals with it in His Word. So financial fellowship manifests genuine faith. Financial fellowship results in spiritual profit so that those who are godly and have a genuine motive can say, it pleases me when you give, not for what we get, but for what it does for you what it does for you spiritually. Third, financial fellowship does take care of God's ministers. Fourth, financial fellowship is an act of worship 
that pleases God. It's a fragrant aroma when it's true worship. It is an acceptable sacrifice. It pleases God. You say, how can I please God? One way is to worship Him through giving. Fifth, financial fellowship is accompanied by promise. Financial fellowship is accompanied by promise. Verse 19, Paul says, And my God will fulfill all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. You have been an instrument of God to meet my needs. Now I'm telling you, God will meet all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Paul, how can you say this? How can you make such a promise? Several reasons he can say this. One, because he knows the character of God. He knows his God. He knows the God of the Bible. He knows that God rewards that which pleases him. He knows that God honors, takes care of his people who are serving him rightly. He knows this. To think that you could impoverish yourself, create a need for yourself. Let me just say this quickly. Remember, Philippi exists in Macedonia. Think about the rest of your New Testament. Think about the offering that was taken up for the poor saints in Jerusalem. Remember, Paul marvels at the Macedonian churches that out of their great poverty helped those poor saints in Jerusalem. Put a name to a face, and you'll understand that the Philippians were a part of those Macedonians who had given in that remarkable way. To think that you could impoverish yourself to meet the needs of someone else and God would not meet your needs is to not understand the character of God. God is pleased by His people participating in the fellowship of finances. He is pleased when we engage in mutual support. And He will complete the circle. And Paul knows this. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 10, he wrote this, In this matter I give my judgment. Now he's exhorting the Corinthian congregation to take part in this offering for the poor saints in Jerusalem. In this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. You started this, but you haven't completed the offering. You started with desire, and now I'm exhorting you for your benefit to participate in this act of giving. He says, verse 12, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. G give according to your desire. God is not expecting from you what you don't have. So if you give out of what you are able, if your giving matches your ability, God's pleased with that. In fact, he goes on to say, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need 
so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. Paul is saying in the way that God works, there's this marvelous mutual support that takes place in the realm of God's family. There are going to be times when you have abundance and someone else has need, and God uses your abundance to meet their need. But, but wait for it. The time will come when you have a need, and God will use their abundance to meet your need. In this way, we fellowship together in the matter of giving and receiving, in the matter of finances. It's a beautiful thing that the Lord does in the lives of His people, in the ministry of His church. Verse 15, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Paul knows this about the Lord. And so based on the character of God, he says, the Lord will meet your needs. The Lord will meet your needs. Romans 15, 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. Here's the other aspect of giving and receiving that I mentioned earlier. He says, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Paul exhorting these predominantly Gentile churches to now help Jewish Christians recognizing that it's out of that flow of what God did with Israel that has now resulted in their spiritual riches. Based upon how the Lord has benefited you spiritually, can't you now help them materially? What you've received by God's providential work through Israel is, is far more valuable than, help, than what you could help them with out of the material realm. So he knows this pleases God. Therefore, he's able to Say to them, and my God will fulfill all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Another reason he can say this, this is the promises of God. We can be more specific. You see, God reveals His character by His promises. And we don't have time tonight to do a lot of it, but just think about the many ways and the many places where the Word of God declares that God blesses sacrificial giving. Proverbs eleven twenty four. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Second Corinthians nine six says the point is this: Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God, here's the character of God, for God loves a cheerful giver. God, our God, loves cheerful givers. Do you want to please the Lord? Then be a cheerful giver. And know this, that if you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. And that is not a one-to-one -one return or a one-to-five return materially. The blessing is not always material, but there's blessing where there's faithfulness in the matter of giving. Spiritual blessing. Proverbs 22 verse 9 says, Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed, for he shares his bread with the poor. 
So the character of God allows him to say what he says in verse 19. The promises of God revealing the character of God moves him to say what he says in verse 19. Also his own experience. How can you say this, Paul? Because of his own walk with God. Paul is a giver. And he gives not just materially, he gives of himself. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That is the Apostle Paul. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. In the case of the Corinthians, he wasn't getting a return on that. He says, if I love you more, am I to be loved less? They're upset with him because he says things to them they don't want to hear, but things they needed to hear. And that is the kind of way that he loved them and gave to them. He gave them what they needed, not necessarily what they wanted. And he has not been left without God's care. Here is an example of how God takes care of him. He prompts the Philippians. It's spontaneous. He prompts them to bring a gift to him through Epaphroditus. Can't you see? God is taking care of me. And the same God who takes care of me will take care of you. But fourth reason he says this, verse 19, is because of the resources that are ours in our relationship with the Lord. He says in verse 19, that God will fulfill all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Our security, our needs being met. The reason why our Lord can say to us in Matthew 6, not to, you know, look at the birds of the air, look at the flowers of the field. Look at how God takes care of His creation. Don't you understand? You're of more value than that. If He takes care of these things that are here for a day and gone in a moment, how much more will He take care of you? Oh, you of little faith. The God who created with His words what you see has all of the resources necessary to take care of you and they're all yours in His Son. Distributed according to God's perfect wisdom, distributed according to what He knows your needs to be, both spiritually and materially, but you never need to be afraid because He knows exactly who you are, where you are, and what you need. It doesn't say He's giving to you out of those riches. It says He supplies our needs according to His riches. That is, in keeping with His riches, well, how vast are those riches? Inexhaustible, which means he has no problem supplying for what you need. Do you know that? Do you realize how secure you are in terms of your needs, your needs, not your greeds, your needs being met? God will meet your needs. You don't need to be afraid. 2 Corinthians 6 9 says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Paul describing their state in this world as apostles, he says, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich. And I love this, he says, as having nothing yet possessing everything. That's the reality of it. 
church. He says we possess everything. All of it in the storehouse of our God, all of it on reserve for the care of God's children. According to it, He meets all of our needs in keeping with His perfect wisdom, what He knows we need when we need it, and what's best for us in the realm of our soul. Financial fellowship is accompanied by promise. Last thought. Financial fellowship results in shared praise. When we fellowship together, partner together in the work of God through material things, then when praise comes from the one who's been helped, we all praise with Him, don't we? How does He end this? Verse 20, Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. I've told you already, the Lord has used you. I thank God for you. I rejoice, not in the gift, but what the gift represents. I rejoice in what the Lord is doing. And He's taking care of me in the realm of my heart. I've learned what it is to be content. When I'm in abundance, I'm fine. And when I'm in need, I'm fine. Because Christ is the one who satisfies my heart. And so as I think about you, and I think about the gift, and I think about my need being met, I think about God's providences, I think about God's sovereignty. As I think about what this means for you spiritually, how it's going to benefit you spiritually, when I take the whole picture into account, it adds up to praise. To God, our Father, be the glory forever and ever. And He says, Amen. And what do God's people say? Amen. You see, we all share together in it, don't we? So that when, when we fellowship together in this sort of way, we all get to share in the joy. We all get to share in the praise for what God has done. So in wrapping it up and bringing both sermons together this morning and tonight, I would just ask you, do you know contentment? As I said this morning, where are you struggling with contentment right now? Where are you battling for your heart to be satisfied in Christ? Do you know contentment? And do you know that as you learn that, it will find itself being demonstrated in generosity? When Christ is your treasure and money is not your treasure, then you are free to part with your money in ways you otherwise couldn't to participate in the work of Christ, to participate in the work of the ministry. And if you happen to be on the receiving end of that, then you know a freedom in contentment to not, in, in, in the right kind of way, to not care about the gift because your heart is satisfied regardless. But to give God praise for the gift and to thank God for what it means for the giver. You know it benefits them spiritually. This is supernatural. This only can happen where there's a true church, a Christ-glorifying church. If you say you're no learning contentment, does your trust in God's provision declare that? Anybody here struggling in your belief that God's going to take care of you? Anybody known recently a little bit of panic 
over whether or not you're going to make it and how you're going to make it and what it's going to mean for your future, do you know that your God and Father loves you and takes care of you not only out of His riches, but according to His riches? In glory, in Christ Jesus, everything belongs to you. In Christ. And the Lord will meet your needs. Look around you. See how He takes care of the birds and the flowers in the field. And know that you're worth more than that. He'll take care of you. Will you believe that tonight? So that last question, do you desire more fellowship? I want more fellowship. What do you mean? Nothing wrong with saying I enjoy spiritual friendship. Nothing wrong with saying I'd love to spend more time with my brothers and sisters. Amen. But how about this aspect of fellowship? Do you want to participate this way? Do you want to have a share in what God is doing? By what you do with what He gave you. May the Lord make this a church that we rejoice in fellowship in all of its fullness, including giving. The church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for this glorious passage, Lord, this glorious section that challenges us in so many ways, yet encourages us at the same time. Lord, it convicts us, it reveals where we're failing and where we fall short, and yet at the same time, it gives us hope because we know this is what You're doing in us. Through all the circumstances, through the variety of circumstances You take us through, You're teaching us not to be ruled over by our circumstances. You're teaching us what our true treasure is, and that's you. And you're teaching us to have our hearts rest in you and rely on you for all that we need. So may you take these things we've heard today and drive them deep into our hearts in a way that faith is the result. And may our faith grow, and may our, as a result, our rest and joy and peace grow. We'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.